Welcome to The Naked Truth, real talk about West Coast Swing. My name is Eric. And I'm Deborah. And today we are going to discuss how our expectations throughout our dance journeys affect our happiness, our attitudes towards dance, and our behaviors towards others. Returning to the show to join us for this conversation is our friend, Dr. Divi Ravindranath. Divi is a board-certified psychiatrist at Palo Alto Veterans Affairs Healthcare System and clinical associate professor affiliated at Stanford University School of Medicine, Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. As a reminder, all opinions expressed on this show are his own and not endorsed by Stanford or the federal government. Not only is he an experienced psychiatrist, but he's also a West Coast swing dancer and DJ who lives here in the Bay Area. Please welcome back to the show, Dr. Divi Ravindranath. Yay. All right. All right. Happy to be back. Thanks for having me back. Yeah. Well, last you. time you were on was a great episode. We got lots of great feedback that your mm-hmm. contributions were super helpful. So we're thrilled to have you back on to continue great. the conversation. Great. That was a mouthful, by the way, explaining your title and where you're affiliated with and all of that. Can you say that again, Eric? Fast? Five times? Can I say it? Yes. Backwards? <laughs> In heels? while doing a tango hey that's what happens when you have a very accomplished person on the show we're gonna have a mouthful of titles we didn't even do all of them because last time i did your whole background um (laughs) so anyway we have talked um a lot on this show about sort of the emotional journey that people go through and and the different feelings and behaviors that occur in our dance world both competitive but also socially and more generally especially around topics of community um, uh, learning, teaching, all of these things. So one of the topics that has come up a lot is the topic of entitlement, um, the belief that one deserves more or is entitled to more than others are, and how that affects our interactions, primarily on the social dance floor. We've talked a lot about it in terms of asking other people to dance and how people respond to that. What can you tell us about the psychology of entitlement and what it means for how we come into this dance community? Sure. Happy to comment on that. And, you know, I've, I've been looking, catching up on all the podcasts, listening about it. And so I've um, been sort of framing my thoughts in terms of some of the things other people have said along the way. It's been a really great journey, even listening to the podcast week after week. Nice. Um, the As far as entitlement goes, uh, you know, the word entitlement kind of has developed this very negative connotation that, you know, the government has, quote, entitlement spending. And who are these people who are so entitled to the entitlement? Um, and, you know, it's it doesn't have to be that way. If you just take the word and break it down, uh, to be entitled to something is to have an expectation that something will be given to you. And that expectation may be related to the hard work that was done. Um, and so then you'd expect an outcome and a person would reliably and appropriately get upset <laughs> if the work was not rewarded in the way that is, that was expected. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> it could also be thought of in like a, a customer service framework. So if I go to a burrito place and I say I would like sour cream on my burrito and I get my burrito and there is no sour cream, I would I'm feel entitled. Life. I would feel entitled to some sour cream. Mm-hmm. I go back to the counter, say, hey, what's the deal? And, you know, uh, the way things work um, in the U.S. as far as customer service goes, if you go say well, there's no sour cream, you will get some sour cream. Right. That is uh, the way that works. So um, as far as the psychology of entitlement goes, I kind of think about it in terms of, uh, you know, a sense of being able to put yourself out there and support yourself, um, more of like a self-esteem perspective. Um, and some would call these, uh, to an ex- if you take it to an extreme, it can become 
kind of a selfishness or a narcissism. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so, you know, for the purposes of conversation, I'll call these narcissistic impulses, but they're not like in the negative way. Like one might think of like somebody with a narcissistic personality disorder, uh, which is more like an inflexible, uh, interpersonal approach that features grandiosity, denial, projection, and kind of putting themselves over others in all circumstances with no empathy. That's not exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking more about like being able to advocate for yourself in a way that is positive for you uh, is, uh, you know, so if you're entitled to something, you should stand up and get it. Now, so this ties back into some of the theme of uh, what we've been talking about here, which is about expectations. Um, So if I order a burrito with sour cream, it is my expectation that there will be sour cream in the burrito, right? Mm -hmm. right? And so (laughs) therefore, I am not entitled in the negative way when I go to ask for the sour cream that wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Makes sense? Now, yeah. uh, if not, if I am, you know, coming in with a different set of expectations than are, are uh, kind of subculturally or culturally derived, and I stand up and say, hey, where's where's my whatever it is, then, uh, then people would think of me as entitled in the negative way. Right? Mm-hmm. Right. All right. So now, how does this apply to dance, right? So in a dance contest, if somebody did a lot of work, right, did a lot of hard work, they uh, feel like they should get rewarded. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Um, now, how is that work defined? You know, people may have uh, practiced once a month for a little while, maybe taken three classes. To them, that feels like a lot of hard work, but it's nothing in comparison to somebody who takes classes every week, practices every day, so on and so forth. Now, the level of entitlement might feel the same because the, it's what the person expects mm-hmm. uh, to come through. Um, then uh, if we were to change the, change the frame to something like social dancing, uh, there's an <clears throat> expectation that if you ask somebody to dance, the answer will be yes. Right. 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 And mm-hmm. so when somebody gets the no, they might feel entitled to the to getting the yes. And they might ask over and over, kind of become badgering in that way, which then makes for an uncomfortable situation on the social dance floor or on the social dance floor margin, as the case may be. Right. I'll stop there and see if I'm going in a direction that. Well, here's uh, my question. <clears throat> so because I feel like that, you know, expectations and entitlement kind of go hand in hand. Sometimes what you expect is what you feel you're entitled to and and, and vice versa. So my question is, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So my question is, is I feel like what an expectation for me may be different than an expectation for you. Right. As far as something is concerned. So who and how um, do we set those expectations and, and, and what does that look like? like in the dance community, because me as a, as a champion dancer, you know, my expectation is to have almost always a good outcome because I work really hard on my dancing. And when I mm-hmm. say work really hard on my dancing, it's all the time constantly. Yeah. yeah. But there, right. But there are others that, you know, for them working really hard is working an hour a day mm-hmm. or, or working twice a week. Right. Right. But they, yet they expect the same thing that I expect. Right. Right. So talk about, um, what happens when we're in our dance world and, and, and how expectations change depending on who you are, what level you are, 
and things like that. Right. So, you know, <clears throat> I think I said this last time I was on, but people walk into a dance studio or a club or a bar or wherever it is that they're dancing with all of their life packaged within them. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there are people who walk around having high expectations of everything. Uh, they might be people who have had a lot of success in other aspects of their life without having had to put in a lot of work. And so for them, there's this feeling that they don't have to do a ton of work because they're just kind of blessed in that way. They have the talent that should spill over into every activity they do, every activity they do. That is a type of grandiosity, right? That I am mm-hmm. better than everybody else. And so going back to the personality disorder thing that I was talking about before, right? Not to say that people who have had life easy in that way have a personality disorder necessarily. Uh, it's it's kind of in that spectrum, yeah. you know, that we're sort mm-hmm. of moving more in that direction a little bit. Um, in the same way, uh, you may have somebody who has had all their problems solved for them by other people mm. in their lifetime. That if things go wrong, then they can, <clears throat> you know, call upon their parents when they're younger or call upon an, an uncle or then somebody save them. Somebody saves them all the time. Yeah. Right? Right. And there's an yeah. expectation that they will <clears throat> always be saved. Yeah. So and isn't that like being entitled? Right. Exactly. Okay. Exactly right. Right. So then it's possible <clears throat> for them to go out there and make these make ludicrous claims that, mm-hmm. you know, just because I practice once a week or once a month and I'm I can do all the things the champions can do. Mm-hmm. which is obviously not the case. Now, as far as the dance world goes, when somebody walks into a dance studio or a dance class or whatever it might be, they come with their own expectation of what's going to happen that evening. And so uh, I think many of us have had the experience of somebody coming into West Coast Swing thinking it is swing with crazy lifts and retro outfits. Right. So they may come with, uh, the retro outfits on expecting the class to be about this and that. And the class is about something different. And then they look around and they see all everybody else is dressed in casual clothes and whatever else. And the next time around, they'll learn from that experience and adjust right. their expectations accordingly. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, so that's more like an implicit setting of expectations. There can also be an explicit setting of expectations, which usually happens top down from community leaders as we've talked about, the, the two-part series with the community leaders was really fantastic. And I think everybody there talked about how they set expectations for the groups that they lead, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the groups that they run, um, whether that's things like a code of conduct or statements or announcements in class about, you know, expectations for how people should uh, comport themselves in the room, uh, you know, doing activities in order to make it so that people get more involved, so on and so forth. These are all things that the community leaders can do in order to define the expectations for what's happening in the room. Right. Now, of course, some people learn faster than others. And right. as we talked about last time, I think, you know, learning requires that people are open to changing their perspective mm-hmm. rather than, uh, you know, grinding gears when they try, when they're faced with something new or feeling so bad about themselves that they need to, when they can't get it, they don't understand what's going on, that they need to leave the room. Um, so in this way, people can, if people can learn, they can grow out of those narcissistic perspectives. Now, narcissism used more in a negative frame. Right. Um, so they can grow out of those perspectives as the implicit and explicit forces adjust their expectations uh, for the for the dance scene that they're part of. But that's only if they want to, right? Only if they want to. Right. I mean, I feel like, you know, there are people in, and not just in the dance community, 
that they want instant gratification without having, you know, to do the work or they, right. right? Or they, you know, they, they have, um, you said grandiose, like they have this grandiose feeling of how amazing they are when they really not because they haven't done right. uh, the work. All right. So I'm not crazy. I mean, don't answer ah. that. <laughs> <laughs> crazy is not a technical term. So right. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And I, it's interesting because I'm mindful as a community leader of what you said, Divi, that people coming in, especially a lot of my dancers who are coming in brand spanking new, right? They don't have any expectations other than, you know, some of them do think it's going to be a big band swing dance and it's not, right? So uh, they come in and I feel like it's my job as the instructor as well as the community leader to help them form those expectations. The thing is that we do have a community that generally does say yes, right? I mm-hmm. mean, in general, and if not, it's usually for good reason, but the, the yeses happen way more than the noes. Yeah. I feel like people hear a no and that can be rather jarring because they form this expectation that everybody will say yes. And it's been validated and affirmed <laughs> over and over and over. And then they get a no. Mm-hmm. Um, I had the instance, by the way, just recently, um, of exactly what you said, where somebody asked me to dance and I was actually on my way out. It was past time for me to leave and I'd already changed my shoes and she was rather insistent that I dance with her. Right. So I like walk away now feeling like I'm a jerk for saying no, but I also have to be true to the fact that like, I'm tired, I'm done and I need to leave. Um, but I also feel like she should also be mindful and respectful of the fact that you were walking out the door and you don't have your shoes on. Right. So again, it's a matter of expectations, right? I feel bad that I let her down at the same time. I was kind of bugged that she was so insistent when I'd rather she just honor my no. Um, Mm -hmm. And I know that's something, you know, we talked about this with Shanti too, about consent. Like if somebody says no, that needs to be okay. Um, And I think it's tricky to, set those expectations. I know I've been talking with Shanti about it and I've seen some other communities, including Hughes actually, um, you know, practice the no. So people get comfortable with that. But I think it's important that as community leaders, we think about the expectation there. Um, so that when people do encounter their first, no, it's not so shocking. Like it's acceptable. Right. Right. Well, I tell my students all the time. Also like when I'm at workshop weekends or at, at events that, you know, when somebody says no, it's not a personal thing. It's one, it's either one of two things. It's either they've just finished a dance and they're tired, right? Happens. Or happens. <clears throat> um, or uh, they have an injury. I think the problem is is when when we say no, we need to give an explanation so that it it, it lessens the blow of the no. I think. What yeah. do you think? And, and that's that's kind of the way that this community, uh, various places I've danced, there's that's kind of the way it's evolved though. There's also the idea that no is a complete sentence right. and right. That we should be able to say no and not have to give an explanation and not right. be badgered for it. Right. Right. And, um, so I think that's where, you know, like I said, some people learn more slowly mm-hmm. and, uh, change is hard and it's just going to take some time. Now, uh, the times when I've, uh, heard no or had to say no for mm-hmm. the most part, the badgering is rare. Yes. Right. You know, for the most yeah. part. Mm-hmm. Right. And so we're talking about the exceptions rather than the rule, which is a nice thing to say about the, all the people we dance with. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, that's true. 
We, we have a good meaning. So let's go back to what you were saying earlier about competitors, because we do have a lot of competitors. And in my experience, the greatest frustration I've seen from dancers is those who compete. And like mm-hmm. you said, maybe it's the work they put in. Maybe they just felt really good about their dancing. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe they just feel like they're better than the other people who made it to finals or placed. Um, but for, which happens, which happens. Um, yes. but for whatever reason, you know, it strikes me, and this is me speaking personally, as well as watching students and others go through that process, that a lot of frustration comes from expectations and competition. Um, yeah. what can you say about, about setting those expectations? I mean, you compete and you've been in our dance world. Um, what have you experienced and what do you think would help competitors to, manage expectations. I know in the last um, podcast that you were here, we talked about sort of having a support for when things are disappointing. But um, mm-hmm. since we're talking about expectations here, let's dive into how that applies to competition. Sure. A bit. Yeah, let's side of the frame. So mm-hmm. I think um, the example of the burrito earlier uh, is a good one, right? So <clears throat> if I get sour cream, when I when I ask for it, I'm happy. Mm-hmm. If I don't get it, I'm not happy. Sometimes if I get too much sour cream, I'm similarly not happy. There's mm-hmm. such a thing as too much uh, sort of over, over, overdoing or um, exceeding the expectations that can happen in a positive or negative way. So <clears throat> I would say that happiness is when expectations are met. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so, uh, so as far as the competition goes, you know, the expectation might be to get into finals or the expectation might be to get first place. Or the expectation might be to have three really awesome dances. Uh, you know, of the three, there are varying degrees of control that the person has over the outcome. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. That I think Brandy talked about this. The only thing you can actually control is the clothes you wear. Yep. Right. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. So, uh, mm-hmm. so that's kind of a kind of a background when walking into a Jack and Jill, for example, that people need to have in mind. Uh, so then. The idea of setting realistic expect realistic expectations is probably the best way to maximize the joyfulness that can come from a competition experience or otherwise. The realistic part is really the hardest thing to to fit, mm-hmm. right? So going back to the idea of narcissistic impulses, like somebody who has no narcissistic impulses is going to have zero interest in being in a spotlight, right? right. Being watched while they're being judged, this sort of thing. They have to. There has to be some level of belief that they are good enough to be out there, mm-hmm. right? So that same narcissistic impulse also blurs us to or blinds us to the, uh, you know, maybe the problems that are there, right? Right. So mm-hmm. if we're good enough to be out there, then we're also good enough to be in finals, for example. Mm-hmm. If we're good enough to be out there, then we're good enough to get first place. Only one person, only one couple can get first place. Only 15 couples will be in finals. And so these become unrealistic expectations. Um, so uh, so like I was saying before, life experience sort of defines like, defines what, how we walk into Approach the room things. and what sort of expectations we have, right? right? Um, on the other hand, some people are slow to learn. <laughs> so, I love that statement so much. <laughs> so, so the question becomes, when does confidence actually become overconfidence? Right. right. I'm confident enough to be out there on the floor. Am I overconfident? And the overconfidence would then block me from learning in that moment. So, for example, if I think I'm hitting all the breaks and then I watch the video and I'm not, 
then that can have the effect of causing me to practice working, really working on getting with the music and hitting the brakes correctly. Mm -hmm. Same video could be watched by somebody else with a different mindset about themselves and about their own dancing. And they watch and they're hit, not hitting all the brakes and they're like, well, my partner messed this up. Right. right. Or, right. Passing or, the buck. Right, right. Or this was the DJ playing music that's not really swing music or whatever, mm -hmm. whatever the excuse is. And it stops their growth at that moment. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, so then how, so then going back to the question, how can uh, competitors manage their expectations in order to ensure that they have a joyful experience in competition? The answer is to have realistic expectations, to be that first person that when you watch your video, you say, okay, well, these are the things I can work on. And I know I need to be working on these things. So I'm going to work on these things mm -hmm. and then come into the next contest with a realistic expectation that those things have been addressed. Right. Would you say that? Because um, I feel like we touched base on this a little bit in the other podcast, but I'll ask again. Um, don't you feel like intention is really important before you go into competition, what your intent is? I feel like if you go into a competition with the intent of, uh, I'm going to enjoy my dance and I'm going to have a great dance with my partner and I'm going to have a good time. Then the, all the other stuff that you're really working hard towards, like placing or winning, usually kind of falls into place because your intent is in the right space. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I can, uh, I agree that amongst, <clears throat> excuse me, amongst the things that are controllable versus not controllable, mm -hmm. uh, having a good partnered experience in your contest dances is more controllable than being seen as having, you know, great lines or whatever the the visual criteria might be, right? Right. So it is if you, somebody wants to have a really fun experience in in the contest, and don't worry about how you look. Why can't well, well, oh, so hold on though? Can't we have both? Because I feel like my intent always to go into competition is about having a good time. Um, mm -hmm. But I also want to look good, too. So right. I, I, I always have a saying, um, I'll never sacrifice my technique or how I feel about the dance to gain a specific outcome. Yeah. So I can have both. Yeah. Or am I being unrealistic? Uh, there's There have been multiple commentaries on this question by people <laughs> who are wiser than me about the way this dance is done in the contest <laughs> and judged in the contest. Gotcha. Right? So we can reach back. I think Robert Royston was talking about this uh, maybe on the podcast, maybe something else where I attended of his where, you know, that you can have an amazing partner shared experience. Nobody will see it. Right. Because the way, you know, the judges' backs happen to be turned to you in that moment. It might be the most fun dance ever. Nobody sees it. Right. So then well, you they advance. Didn't, they just didn't like it. They didn't like it, right? right? Whatever it might be. One of the things I'm hearing from you is that line between confidence and overconfidence. It mm -hmm. sounds like confidence is knowing what's in your control. Yeah. Whereas mm -hmm. overconfidence is thinking you're in control of things that you're not. Right. Being cocky. Cocky. Exactly. Yeah. Like you can't control yeah. the outcome. You can't control what the judges see or what they like or what they want, but... I can control what I do. I can't control the music, right? right? So I take responsibility for what's within my control. And if it's not in my control, I let it go. Right. Um, what do you think, though, of the idea that, you know, people compete to win? Yeah. So how do you reconcile 
not having the expectation that you're going to win, but having the desire that you want to. Yeah. And then we've talked about dealing with the frustration of not winning, <laughs> but right. it seems, it seems challenging to still have a joyous experience and, and joyous outcome for yourself. If you go into a competition wanting to win, even though, even though you know it's out of your control, is it really about just accepting that it's out of your control, but still wanting it? How do you hold right. those two I mean, things in I your can, hands? I can want things that are out of my control. Mm-hmm. Right? right. I think that is very reasonable. I can uh, buy a lottery ticket. Right. right. Mm-hmm. Wanting to win, knowing that the, whatever numbers come up are out of my control. And the odds there are probably better than getting first place in the contest. <laughs> <Probably>. <laughs> you know what I mean? Even in California with all the people here. Yeah. Oh my God. That's so, funny. so, uh, so I can, it's, it is not, uh, it's not cognitively incongruent to want things that are out of our control. Okay. Right. And to work right. towards things that are out of our control. The idea of like, I can't be perfect, but I'll work towards perfection. Right. So, the, so we need to have a, a level of, of, uh, within ourselves of being realistic in general with things that we are trying to accomplish, whether mm-hmm. it be a dance competition or a swim competition or, or anything that's competitive. Right. We, have, we right. have to have some sort of, you know, realistic expectations. Otherwise, we can become very disappointed. Right. Okay. Yeah. And I think right. the the other point I'm getting from you, Divi, on that is separating your hopes from your expectations. Right. Yes. I hope I win. But. Uh-huh. What I expect is just to do what I can in my control to be my best and see what happens. Right. I do believe, though, um, Ben, correct me if I'm wrong, Divi. There is a a level of of, um, control that you can have, like, say, when you enter a routine division. Yes. You you pick your music, you pick your partner, and basically you know who your competitors are throughout the year, you know, each, each event. So you know what you have to do in order to either place or beat the competitors that you want to beat. Would you say that that's true? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So I think there's increasing degrees of control going from a Jack and Jill environment to a strictly environment to a routine environment. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, I mean, this may be why some competitors prefer one over the other, you know. Right. I get that. So, you know, a lot of us, especially um, Eric and I, um, we give, you know, a lot to our communities because we love the dance and we love our community. Uh, but sometimes we feel like we give more to our community than we receive back. And it could be disheartening, discouraging, or even frustrating. Can you talk a bit about how we might understand this give and take and how we can avoid or cope with these negative feelings? So I think that in any community, there are givers and there are takers, mm-hmm. right? And that, um, you know, there may be some proportion of, if you were to imagine that this is some sort of normal normalized curve, that people fall somewhere in there between give and take, and that under certain circumstances they're takers and under other circumstances they're givers, but for the most part, they're in the middle somewhere, right? right. <clears throat> and it's when a community gets filled in with takers uh, that it um, starts to feel, um, the, the work starts to feel like work. Mm. as opposed to it being um, more of a team effort. So uh, it's about setting an expectation as well, right? And how the uh, community leader approaches the people who are there, right? Is it a approach with gratitude such that gratitude can be expected back? Or is it an approach with entitlement 
that you're giving me money. You're you're here to give me money, whereas a business exchange, and then that's that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How much does you know? We you mentioned how people come with all of their experience, right, and who they are mm-hmm. into that situation. How much does self-esteem or self-worth come into that? And I ask because we are in a social dance world, and we even talked about this on the last podcast about how self-esteem kind of plays into it of seeking that external validation. Because mm-hmm. right. um, I feel like a lot of people that I know who contribute to the community, they do so out of love, um, but sometimes they also do it because they want to feel a part of something. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and feeling a part of something means I need some sort of feedback that says, yes, we accept you and you belong. Right. Right. There's this, I'm giving, um, with the expectation of some sort of reciprocity of something. Um, right. So, how much does that really play into it? Whether you're a community leader or anybody else. I mean, lots of people, um, we didn't really talk about this on our community organizing episodes, but volunteers are a huge part of, oh, absolutely. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, of any community and, or any event, um, even weekend events. So how much does that factor into this, um, you know, that, that person's experience and their sense of self coming into this experience, their expectations? Right. So, uh, so people need some external validation to know that they're going in the correct direction, mm-hmm. right? Otherwise, it's going to feel like they're, uh, you know, a ship without a rudder, so to speak, just sort of being pushed around wherever they're going to go. Right. Um, so there needs to be some of that. But when somebody's entire self-worth is tied up in what other people think of them, they're now giving away power mm. right. around them. Uh, so, you know, think kind of the same same idea of contest, same idea of running a community. You're only in control of the things you're in control of. Right. And so if you give away control to the people around you to tell you you're doing a good job, then, you know, you might not always get that back. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I'll, I'll make a plea to the listening audience to thank your community leaders because they do work tirelessly and, and, uh, you know, with a lot of heart. And this is not, not always a, uh, financially rewarding situation. <laughs> right. Right. And nor is necessarily a socially rewarding situation outside of the West Coast swing world. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, appreciate what they do. And I will say that. Divi and his wife, Joanna, are great community leaders and give a lot. So I'm grateful to you both for helping to foster community down on the peninsula. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you. Um, could you talk a little bit about, because, you know, I, I, I travel a lot and um, I encounter uh, many communities with um, more than one community leader. Right. Right. And I often encounter, more often than not, um, the community leaders do not like to work together or won't work together. And, and I find it interesting that, you know, the whole word community means to do things together. Right. And yet these community leaders um, are constantly fighting against one another. And I, I realize that part of the problem is ego. Yeah. Right. But, but can we go a little bit in depth into how, what do you think is actually happening? And and as a community leader that doesn't have the ego, that wants all of us to work together, what's a good way to approach it? Right. So um, I think it was it might have been I think it was Jesse Lopez who talked about how things looked in his in his area 
before he got going and mm-hmm. like he he was saying that he would go to a studio and dance there for years and not hear about what was happening across town. Right. right. And he's like, what do you mean? I could have been dancing somewhere else. Right. Mm-hmm. This whole time. And I think the conclusion that he came out with, and if I understood correctly, um, pardon me, Jesse, if I'm misquoting you was that some of this was financially motivated with like a fear that if, you know, my, my students were to go to the studio across town to like it better right. and mm-hmm. stop coming to my dance. And then all of a sudden, you know, my my financial coffers are drained and I can't keep up what I'm doing and then everything spirals out of control. Right. <clears throat> and so uh so if I'm if I'm to understand correctly, the lesson that comes out of that is that um the schisms that come up are in some ways anxiety motivated. That the idea that the pie is only so large and mm-hmm. so it needs to be gobbled up only by me. Because there's only enough pie for one person, as opposed to the idea that the pie can be grown. And then make it so that there's more availability of the dance all around and more students to go around and more dancers to go around and more joy to be had because there's so many other places to go to dance and, and just sort of spread the love, so to speak. Right. So if I was a uh, an external viewer of this and had some power to do something about it, then the thing I'd want to do would be to reduce the anxiety about sharing the pie with the idea that the pie could be grown. Mm-hmm. That's sort of a, I mean, I'm not in a position to do that, so I kind of feel ill-suited to comment on exactly how that happens. And <laughs> local politics are local politics, and everything will be different from place to place, but this is the overall concept I can think about. Right, but you can say that, but then they, they're still not receptive to it. Right. There's you know? fear. Right. right. Well, that, right. yeah, lots of things are based yep. on fear, of course. Yeah, yeah. there's um, uh, avoid. Yeah, and we um, said that like this is not a very profitable endeavor <laughs> to mm-hmm. run the community. I mean, it's hard. It can be, I guess, if you if you really make it work. But my experience in seeing those communities that are divided, um, yeah, sometimes it's ego. Sometimes it's personal. Like they personally don't like somebody else for whatever reason. Right. right. But um, I think I think you're right, Davy. I think a lot of it is driven by fear and anxiety. Um, whether it's financial, whether it's um, that, that I guess it is ego in the sense of not having a following, right? But I know a lot of them are financially driven because this is their livelihood. And right. you're taking a risk by introducing your students to somebody else. And if you're not confident right. in your teaching or what you offer people, you know, yeah, it's easy to be afraid of loss. And the fear right. of loss is greater than the the excitement or, of potential gain. <laughs> so. Right. That's where people are going to go. So I, I I think you're right in tapping into the fear, but I also hear what you're saying, Deborah, that it's challenging. How do you get people to be okay with it? Because they have to take the risk in order to see the potential results. Right. right? And I think like, don't, I, I feel like, you know, if you really love this dance, like, like people say that they, that they love this dance, that they want, they're going to want to like flourish it as much as possible. And, and I feel like things work so much better in numbers than they do when we try to like, you know, separate us or, or try, you right. know, this is, this is my group and, you know, and that's, you know, and that's your group. And, and, and the only reason I say this, cause I often felt like I've, I've lived in many places and I've worked in all the places that I've lived in and they only appreciate the top professional when that, when they leave the area. Right. Um, cause they fear that that top professional 
is going to take work away from them, mm-hmm. not realizing that if anything, I'll bring more work to right. them because I'm helping build um, the community. So I feel like it's a catch 22 and, and I'm, I'm kind of like in a conundrum where I want to be, I want to help community as much as I possibly can, but mm-hmm. I feel pushback from certain people in the community because their agenda is different than mine. Right. Mine isn't financially based. Right. Right. It's about spreading the love. And in that yeah. way, it becomes more, more financially advantageous, right? If there are more people right. coming in to pay, t- pay the, the door fee or whatever, then, mm-hmm. you know, um, yeah. I mean, some of these hurts are old, right? And to pop in for a weekend or two and head out, like, it's going to be very hard to change the politics that are there. Um, Jesse, Jesse changed the politics. He Kansas did. City. Mm-hmm. He worked hard, right, to make that mm-hmm. happen. I think Hugh, Hugh had a similar story in um, Minneapolis, in St. Paul, Twin Cities as well, where, you know, there was one club here and another club there, and they didn't really work with each other. So I think... And now they do. Now they do. Right. So I think those stories uh, yield the conclusion that it is doable, mm-hmm. but it is something that needs to be done over time uh, in a gradual way and in a way that's not going to be more anxiety provoking, right? That there needs to be that strength of relationship that's there in order to overcome the anxiety that has been entrenched for so long. Yeah. Cause I, I think the gradual point is important um, because I have seen people come into a community with whatever intention to either build their own following around ego or to actually mm-hmm. try and, you know, generously help the community, but they do mm-hmm. so without being mindful or respectful of those who are already there. Right. And it only, mm-hmm. yes, they may be successful in growing community, but often at the expense of hurt feelings and divisions, um, all the political agita that goes with stepping right. on toes that people right. aren't mindful of. Political uh, agita. <laughs> agita. You like that? Agita, yeah. I like yeah, it. Bring it's that good. Very Italian. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> so speaking of growing communities, one of the things we've talked about here is how to motivate people and how to uh-huh. keep them motivated. Um, the last time you were here, we talked about the sort of competency model and how people hit a certain level of conscious competence and they start to get deflated a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so what can we learn from motivation theories? Um, I know I studied a bunch in grad school, usually around organizational motivation, like in the workplace, but what mm-hmm. can we learn about motivation and how teachers, coaches, community leaders can help keep people motivated and enthusiastic, especially when they hit those challenges or those rough patches in their dance journey? Yeah. So, uh, so motivation. So y'all, have you seen the movie Inside Out? Yes. Yes. I love that movie. <laughs> right. Great movie, right? Yes. With the, where they have the five characters representing different emotion states and Mm-hmm. the kid's mind and they sort of zoom in and out mm-hmm. then uh i think the storyline's about how the character representing joy kind of abandons her post so to speak and it becomes mm-hmm. on the other four characters who are sadness anxiety anger and disgust, disgust. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> comes on them to try and right the ship so to speak mm-hmm. but none of them are really able to do it very well and then it sort of switches in and out between the character the real life things are happening and then things are happening in this kid's head. So this is not, um, this movie was actually developed in consultation with neuroscientists. 
And the idea was to make the internal happenings of the child's mind fit in with what we experience in the world as closely as possible. That there are different emotional impulses that come up, whether those are positive impulses like joy or hope or um, happiness, these sorts of things. Um, and then there are negative impulses that come up like sadness or anxiety, fear, so on. And those uh, have to be mediated by the different structures in the brain, most of which are, you know, towards the front of the head, frontal lobe structures, as they're called. So um, in the first category, we have hedonic impulses, things that cause us to go, when we experience something and it generates those positive emotions, it causes us to gravitate towards those. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the second category, when we experience things that causes us to have those, neg quote, negative emotions, it causes us to go away from those or to avert those or aversive experiences. Um, so um, dance inherently is a hedonic experience. Right. Right. So mm -hmm. when we look at the biology for uh, positive experiences, things that drive us to do things, uh, it's triggered by things like food and sex and social affiliation. Now, in our modern world, there's a lot of social complexity around this. And so, you know, what what might drive for social affiliation might be different in different places, but it's all kind of the same thing. Now, sadly, this can also be co-opted by alcohol and drugs and nicotine and all the other chemicals that uh, become addictive in their own way. Mm -hmm. um, though those chemicals can potentiate or can make it easier to uh, go over a certain threshold for experience experiencing the joy of something that wasn't joyful before. Right. So now dance, like I said, is inherently hedonic in that it brings us uh, physical contact with somebody else, which activates in a sexual way, not always sexual on the dance floor, of course, but the concept is the same. Um, and then it's also uh, generates a social affiliation, that there's a community in which this is happening. It's not just, you know, one person doing it by themselves or two people, uh, the whole world is them, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, that's why dance is so powerful. Now, just like any other drug, people can overdose on dance. What? Right. <laughs> Believe it or not, what? it is possible. Dancers Explain Anonymous, that. we're forming a new group. <laughs> so, uh, so now many of us and many listeners certainly will have had the experience of having a fantastic dance weekend where they were up until all hours of the night and then up all through the day, maybe using some of those chemicals I was talking about in order to potentiate their experiences, maybe even just caffeine, yeah. right? So they can stay up and enjoy this for longer. Yeah. Um, Monday comes, right? Mm -hmm. Swung over. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. And we've all had that experience where we we're so swung over and all we want to do is relive the highs of the weekend. Mm -hmm. We do that by watching our videos taking a look at the pictures they're shared, look, going over the score reports, whatever it is that can tie us back to the experiences we had, right? That is a uh, withdrawal phase on Monday, right? And the withdrawal is eased by reconnection to the thing that was giving us that positivity. Okay? Right. Mm -hmm. So now back to the question at hand, right? So when people burn out on the dance, it might be because they're doing the dance in a way that is unsustainable, Right. Either their expectations for themselves are so lofty that they will not be able to meet them. Right. I'm going to win every contest ever. And you have a couple of early successes, then it doesn't always work out no. the way the way the you know the way the dance contests are structured. 
it's not always going to work out. So at some point, it becomes unsustainable. And then it, what was previously a hedonic experience becomes an aversive experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Or it might be that they are doing this uh, to the compromise of their financial situation. Hmm. That makes complete sense. Right? Like right. flying off to places they don't have the money to afford. Right. Right. And they come back and they have to work multiple jobs or whatever it is in order to make the make their ends meet. Then all their time is spent doing something and there's no opportunity for growth. And now they're stressing out about paying what they've just spent. Right. Right. Because it's another problem. Yeah. So. So then what can community leaders, coaches, mentors do when they see somebody who's overdosing on the dance? Right. Doing it in a way that's unsustainable then maybe it's time to have a conversation with somebody about, you know, we want you to be in this community for a long time. Right. Right. Maybe it's time to do something slightly differently in how you approach this thing, whether that is, Hey, you know, you're not going to win every contest. Let's set your expectations a little bit differently. Or it might be, Hey, I love that you're coming here all the time. Are you able, really able to attend to your other life responsibilities so that can be settled and you can be available for the dance in the best way? That makes sense. Yeah. And, and so a, a, a lot of those reasons that you mentioned, um, like burning the candle at both ends and, and, and all that stuff, um, could be a reason why people um, would step back from the dance a little bit or from the community. But I've also heard that people step back uh, from the dance and the community because lack of joy or enthusiasm, right? Right. Um, for the dance. So what might be driving the fact that people feel this way about the dance, like lack of joy or enthusiasm, and, and and what could we do to regain those feelings back, to bring the dancing back to that right. joyous feeling? What what right. could we do to get there? So um, people engage and disengage with the dance on a regular basis, mm-hmm. right? It might be um it might be the I think it was a mailbag episode when Tom Paderne asked a question about this and some yeah. something right. And at the end, I think Eric, your answer was Tom, call me. right right it was too much to answer yeah (laughs) yeah 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 so you know people need to have that they need to talk it through right all these emotional impulses exist in a part of the brain that is nonverbal, and it's the process of actually talking about somebody what somebody's experiencing that converts all that electrical energy that's happening in the middle or back parts of the brain into something that can be grappled with that can be decided upon in some sort of rational fashion, right? And so people need to talk it through and make some decisions for themselves. What What is this going to be? And what is my role in this world going to be given where I'm at right now so I can continue to be a part of it, part of this thing that I love so much in a way that is sustainable for me in the long term mm-hmm. as opposed to I'm going to go party super hard this weekend and then burn out, right. you know, burn out during the week, so to speak. So do you think that sometimes, like, I, I know for me, like... I, I have two types of weekends. I have the weekend where I'm super present the whole weekend. I'm up early for my workshops. I'm present for the competitions for judging. I stay out social dancing every mm-hmm. night um, till six o'clock in the morning. And then I have those weekends where um, not because of any other reason, except I'm not feeling good about my own dancing that I kind of mm-hmm. back up a little bit from say social dancing or even socializing mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, with people. And, and for me, I feel like it has nothing to do with the external stuff, but it has a lot to do with me, right. myself, 
right. and what, what, what I'm going through. So I, I, I approach it from a different avenue where I'm like, ah, I'm not feeling so great. So I'm going to take a step back a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. And I'll go in my room and hang out for a little bit or maybe phone a friend, right? Right. right. Or, or maybe say, Eric, come to my room. Let's, mm-hmm. let's talk about the dancing or something um, and have a shot of gin because we love our gin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, sometimes I feel like I can't get out of it either way. And right. I feel like just being like a recluse through that weekend is probably a bad idea. Like, like I feel like, right. so what do I do? Right. Well, I mean, the, the plan for recovery, mm-hmm. right. In any of these moments should have multiple parts that, uh, and I, I, we talked about this last time too, but, um, the experience in, on the dance floor and in the dance weekend or what have you, is influenced by where we're at in our lives in general. Right. And so if there are some negativity, something that, uh, that's not working in, in a person's life in general, mm-hmm. then it might be harder to engage that in the dance, uh, in a way that is fruitful, that is positive. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one place to explore. And then the other place to explore is, you know, if it is not in the outside world, if it is in the dance, was there a, aversive experience that happened right right, at some point during that weekend that is not quite processed all the way through yet right in which case call eric right phone a friend yeah yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. so 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 it's it's not being uh, crazy that you know sometimes one incident and it could be something silly to others but something Mm -hmm. very personal to me that that could completely rock your weekend Absolutely. So then the joy that was there gets turned into disgust. Right. Right. Or turn into fear. Right. right. You know, if I have to go back to the ballroom, then I'm going to run into so and so that said such and such or who did such and such. And I can't believe they did that and whatever it is. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So would you say that everyone's, uh, how do I word it? Uh, each of us deal with things differently, obviously. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there's no right or wrong way. Right. To, to get yourself out of the funk. Right. It's whatever works for you as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. Right. Whatever works. Uh, and, um, you know, all things in moderation. Mm-hmm. Right. And right. then uh, I think I said this before that, you know, you know, you know that there might be an aversive experience around the corner. Right. Have some time set aside after that just in case you need it. Right. right. I'm going to spend the next I didn't see my name on the callback list. I'm going to spend the next hour in my room, you know, doing something else so I can get, my, get myself into a different headspace. Right. Right. And then when the hour's done, it's all right, coming back. Right. So one of the things I've noticed is that dancers seem to go through not always the same journey. Everybody's different, but there seems to be a trend. Beginners mm-hmm. are really excited, they're enthusiastic, they get a lot of joy from dancing. And then more experienced dancers seem to have less of that drive, less of that joy. Mm -hmm. Part of this, I think, is what you were talking about in terms of competence level. They get to a certain point where, as Brandy says, it's easy until it's not. Right. right? And they start realizing all the things that they need to work on, and it's harder to work on, and that can be deflating. Um, But I also have a hypothesis that some of this is about expectations. So it's been my experience that as people improve their own competence, Mm -hmm. they start to notice 
differences in competence on the social dance floor. Mm-hmm. Right. So when you're a beginner, you're like, every dance is great. I don't know the difference between a great dance and a not great dance. Right. I'm just <laughs> loving it. And at a certain point, you start to say, oh, now that I've improved, I don't know, my frame or my connection in some way, I recognize that this person is pulling on me or this person right. is not balanced or this person is off time. Right. So right. we improve our own competence. Our perception of others' competence uh, gets a little clearer, right? A little mm-hmm. more distinguishing. And so, as you said, dance is hedonic. We go for good dancing. And yet, the better we get, the more we start noticing that not every dance is great. Right. <laughs> so there's this trade-off, right, where people expect better dances and they find less joy with with lower-level dancers. And we talked about this on the community episode that I think all of us as community leaders struggle with getting higher-level dancers to mix with lower-level dancers. Mm-hmm. And in my experience, both with my own community as well as visiting and, and participating in other dance communities, when the the spectrum or the range of skill is greater, it is more prone to these divisions socially. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Whereas if everybody's kind of the same level, everybody kind of dances with everybody. Yeah, right. it's easier yeah. to get it's easier to mingle. Yeah. yeah. So I'm curious what you think of this hypothesis and, and if you've noticed the same thing. And what might be behind this phenomenon, psychologically mm-hmm. speaking? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and of course, what can we do to help mitigate um, either the, the lack of joy from, you know, that people have or the impact that it may have on our community. Right. Right. So, um, so for the benefit of listeners who may not remember the first one uh, that we talked about, I think it's called the Dunning Kruger effect Mm -hmm. uh, where uh, when somebody enters into a new activity, a new skill they're developing, uh, whatever it might be, they start to do that activity in an unconsciously incompetent way. Uh, So there are, uh, um, you know, they don't really know what they're doing, but they're loving it, whatever it is. And then it's it's when they start to start to find little cracks in that, they start to recognize their own incompetence, that they become more motivated to learn mm-hmm. and uh, evolve their dance. They become more consciously incompetent. That phase is a phase of uh, uh, sadness in a lot of ways because they realize they're not as good they, good as they thought they were. Right. Right. Okay. And then and then the curve progresses to a point where they become consciously competent and then the happiness starts to come back. Mm-hmm. Now, in as individuals go through their progression, if they are asking somebody else to dance, uh, there is an expectation that the they've never let's assume person A, person B never met before. Their uh, person A asks person B, person B says yes. There is an expectation that is applied to the dance skill of person B. And that uh, might be unconscious bias. That might be this is a younger person, this is an older person, this is a larger person, this is a smaller person, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. right, that goes into that. Um, and uh, there's also an expectation that the skill level will be roughly the same. Mm-hmm. Right? Because, you know, we project onto everybody else around us and our own thoughts about ourselves are seen in the people around us, so to speak. But isn't that kind of being a little bit unrealistic? Because when you go into a community, we're all different in general. Doesn't we're all com- different. We're right. all different, right? Now, this is a scenario where I've never met, never seen, never met, never seen the person dance, whatever it is, right? Okay. Then 
you know, I'll think, oh, they're, they're probably at my skill level or above. Really? You think that people do that? I think so. I think so. I think I think the the logic behind this is that when people are in that consciously incompetent phase, they feel like they are not not good at this dance. And so if they're asking somebody else to dance, okay, then there's a thought that if I'm not good at this dance, then they are at least as not good as me. Mm-hmm. Maybe they are better than me. Again, implicit bias, right? So mm-hmm. it depends on the person who's being asked. And um, I can imagine that this would go a different direction based on the biases we have about older dancers, about larger dancers, et cetera, Mm -hmm. et cetera. Right. I feel like that's true for a certain level of dancer. Right. So if we look at skill level in any community or even globally, there are fewer people at the top than at the bottom in Mm -hmm. terms of competence. Right. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I feel like the challenge I face as a community leader is the higher level dancers, so yeah. the ones with higher competence, and I'm not talking competitive level, because let's be honest, that says nothing about your actual competence. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, hi, it'd be nice if you were on time, you're an all-star now. So, um, right. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, so I'm just talking about like higher skill level. Mm-hmm. I feel like, and myself being an all-star level competitor, who I hope is on time, um, I feel like my assumption is, and I feel like I see this in other people, is that if you were good, I would know who you are. Right. Right. right? Like, if right. we, because we know our peers. Mm-hmm. And in, if you've gotten to that level of competence, you've probably been dancing a while. Right. So I feel like the assumption that a lot of people make, and again, I'm maybe I'm projecting on other people, but I feel like there's a lot of assuming that if I don't know you, there's skepticism. Mm-hmm. Like you're probably new and or not very good. And I'll tell you when I moved here to the Bay area, uh, I moved from the East coast and nobody knew me and I went to the dance and granted people here are generally very friendly Mm -hmm. and I, I didn't know anybody. So I'm just going up to everybody and asking to dance was at next gen. And I remember there were plenty of people who kind of wrote like hesitantly said, yes, (laughs) I like to think they were pleasantly surprised, but Mm -hmm. I feel like they're rather than people assuming that you're at the same level. I feel like if they have never seen you, never seen you dance, mm-hmm. and you're a higher level dancer, mm-hmm. the assumption might actually be that they're not at your level, that they're a lower right. level dancer. Right. I so, agree with that. So now this is this is in uh, that perspective is in an, in an evolved state, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'll have to factor that into my um, thinking about this and uh, the explanation. But um, so. And I, I agree that when somebody new pops into the community, right, there's somebody visiting at a weekly mm-hmm. dance or uh, you're at a convention in a part of the country that you're not used to going to, mm-hmm. then some of those implicit biases are going to be even louder. Yeah. Right? Right. That, uh, that you know, they'll be like, oh, I'm going to kind of judge you by the way you look, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. before that having is. that experience, before and set the expectation for how that dance is going to go. Right. Right. But you, yeah, so, so then if somebody walks in, if two people ask each other to dance, one person is clearly higher level than the other, it's kind of a grudging yes, and the dance was not fun. You have to ask yourself the question, why was it not fun? Mm-hmm. Right? Was it because the higher level dancer was not able to do all the acrobatic things they wish they could be doing? Is that true, though? I don't, I don't know. know. That's a question. Gonna, I don't I'm, know. So That's I'm going to have to... I'm going to have to dispute you on that because I'm a higher level dancer. Okay. Uh 
and I dance with a lot of uh, dancers that are not my level. Uh huh. And I still have fun, even though I'm not doing yeah. all the things that yeah. I could do with a high level dancer like me. Right. 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 So, right. So that's that's a modulated expectation for the dance, though. Right. Right. Well, I I feel like okay, and maybe I'm an anomaly. I don't know, but. I, when I'm so, when I'm social dancing, forget about competition because that's a different animal. Mm-hmm. Okay, when I'm social dancing and someone asks me to dance, I expect nothing except right. having a good time. Right. And then what happens is the you get that dance of being with someone who's like really talented, and then the words that come out of my mouth are like, "Oh my God, you're so good! How come I don't know you?" Right. Right, but right. I expect nothing before I get on that dance floor with them. Right, right, right. Sure. And that I mean, may be what right. we that may be what we aspire to, but I think you're right to be that that a lot of people again, it's hedonic. We want good dances. Mm-hmm. Well sure, but you can't expect to have a good dance every time you're dancing. I agree with you. I mean I mean, what are the odds? What right. are the odds? Magic that's like is saying, rare. Right. That's right. like saying every time you enter competition, you should not only have a great dance, but you should always win first place. That just, <laughs> right. that just doesn't happen. Right. Go buy some lottery tickets. Right. Seriously, because then I would be buying lottery tickets and I wouldn't be doing this podcast because right. I'd be in Fiji right now on a right. beach with a pina colada. Take your competition of- fees and buy a lottery ticket. Right. right. <laughs> so, so then, Deborah, if you approach every social dance the way that you do, I think if you heard, I've heard you say before that you can kind of tell how the dance is going to go based on how it starts. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, visually and feel wise, you can tell how it's going to go based on how they connected the starter step and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So that's a moment for the higher level partner to decide, is this going to be a dance where I'm going to get the joy of dancing at my acrobatic best? Mm-hmm. Is this going to be a dance where I get the joy of dancing this person up? Right. Mm-hmm. So that they're dancing at their acrobatic best. Right. Or is this going to be some other sort of dance that's going to be constructed in the moment? Right. But and right. Then, then and, then when, and then when the expectation is set, it's like asking for sour cream on your burrito. Here we are back to the burrito. Yeah, I'm, I'm hungry now. burrito after this call. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> but With sour cream. Isn't part of, right. And sour cream. <laughs> isn't part of it also um, if your partner. So, so like, you know, I get on the dance floor and I'm. I'm I'm with a partner and I can tell by the starter step that this partner is really not interested in having a good dance with me. This partner is really interested in spinning me, turning me, pushing me, pulling me. Uh-huh. Right? Uh-huh. And then and then as the dance progresses in my head, I'm like, let's see if he'll receive like me trying to like slow him down and try to actually connect with him. Yeah. And I and I see that he's not trying to receive it that either. So right. rather than me going like in my head, well, shut down. I'm not going to, I'm just not going to dance at all. all. All I do in my head is, all right, I'm just going to follow, give him the dance that he wants because mm-hmm. he's not interested in the two of us mm-hmm. and then walk off and just call it a write off. Right. Right. And those will happen from time to time, right? The same people who are having those sorts of dances, I'd venture, I would argue that uh, these are also the same people who are slow to learn. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Right. I got to. Gotta, I, 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 yeah, I have a problem <laughs> with the slow to learn part. Uh-huh. I really, I really do, because I feel like, and and again, correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like all of us have the ability to um, 
become better humans and become, you know, better bike riders. And just, it's, it's, it's just a matter of wanting to do the work. Some of us have to work a little bit harder because say they're slower learners, uh-huh. but, you know, like you said, and others learn quicker, but it's, it's a matter of, we could, I feel like we all can accomplish the same thing. So saying, Oh, I'm a slow learner to me. That's like, uh, you know what? Yeah. I'm annoyed with you right now. What do you mean? You're a slow learner. Just do it longer. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then yes. you'll get, and you'll get it. Yes. Yes. Don't so give the excuse uh, that you're a slow learner. <clears throat> so when I, when I say that, I think I'm saying that somewhat facetiously. Okay. Right? I'm really speaking about people who um, already think they've accomplished. And so do not feel like they need to accomplish more. Got it. Mm-hmm. Arrogance. Right? They're, they're slow to learn because they don't feel like they need to be learning. Because they're arrogant. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. The the narcissism, the negative aspect yeah. of narcissism, right? Yeah. yeah. Right. Have you read? I, I have a question for you, uh, Divi. Have you read the book Power versus Force? I have not read the book. Okay, you should read it because it, right. it talks about like how we have we have words that mean the same thing, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. je- jealousy and envy. But yeah. one of them is more positive than the other. Yeah, yeah. And and, and human behavior. It's a really good book. I recommend it. All and right. I recommend it for all the dancers um, mm-hmm. out there because it will also help us um, interact with one another better and how how we choose our words. Yeah. And and yeah. and all um and all those things. Yeah. Um. But moving on. Um, wait, um. Before you move wait, on. Go ahead. Question. Um. On the same topic, because one of the things we've talked about again, is people asking higher level dancers to dance. Mm -hmm. Their expectation is they will say yes, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because that's our general expectation in the community. But then on the flip side, we have these people who are quote unquote slow to learn Mm -hmm. and (laughs) they will say no, because they don't want to have a bad dance. Mm -hmm. Um, Now there may be other reasons why they say no, but sometimes it does seem like bias or maybe they already had a couple of bad dances that night. I mean, I get the feeling we don't want a whole night of bad dancing, right? Like right. none of us wants that. Right. Um, and so anyway, so we have to reconcile that uh, higher level dancers are admired and sought out for their dances. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, granted, again, we shouldn't be expecting that everybody will say yes. But I also feel like at the same time, um, higher level dancers have to find a balance between what they want, better dances and or to socialize mm-hmm. with their friends or whatever it is, and being a part of a community and, and, and saying yes. Right. Right. So right. sometimes there's just a tension between people's expectations. I will ask a higher level dancer to say yes. And the higher level dancer can feel a pressure to say yes but mm-hmm. also have this tension with, I just want to have a good time. Like I'm not, I'm not right. working now. We talked about this with the pros, by the way, and why some of them don't want a social dance. I know Robert mm-hmm. and Brandy talked about it on their wine coast swing at Rose city swing of mm-hmm. like, we're off duty. <laughs> we just want to dance and have a good time. Right. Um, right. Not that they were turning people down. They actually will ask. But um, anyway, I'm curious what you think about the reconciling of. Right. So you know, let's make expectations let's make- and desires. Let's make one assumption, which is that the lower level dancer who is asking has some minimum level of competence that makes the dance possible mm-hmm. and makes it makes it possible for it to happen safely. Mm-hmm. Right. Because mm-hmm. nobody wants to be put into a situation where they have to say they're saying yes to somebody who they know is going to generate an unsafe dance for them. 
Right. Right. So with that assumption there, I, I think the higher level dancer in this scenario has the opportunity to change their expectation for what constitutes a fun dance mm-hmm. from, right, I'm going to dance at my highest level, right, with whatever physical aspects come along with that, to I'm going to dance at dance in a fashion that makes it so that we dance in our collective highest level. Mm-hmm. But shouldn't that be the objective of the higher dancer? They should know better to do that anyway, don't they? Shouldn't they? No? Eric? <laughs> I don't. No, I was kidding. Um, no, I agree with you. I think they should. It's just where we're at right now, we don't. And so the question, the discussion we're having now is how okay. do we foster that kind of mindset? I agree with you. We, we talk about this all the time. If you're a higher level dancer, um, mm-hmm. one, you have more competency and skill to make that dance work. Right. Right. And uh, two, you have more to offer your partner. So you know, going into a partnership, yeah, I want higher level dancers to help lift up their partner um, and make it work because they have more ability to do that than somebody who's at a lower competency level. However, as we just mentioned, people do this dance, they get addicted to it. It's hedonic. Mm-hmm. They want good dances. And the higher mm-hmm. we get in our competence, the more we recognize that not all dances are equal. The magic is rare, but you know, if you ask anybody, I feel like if you ask anybody in our community, our dance community, you know, who may have struggled at one point, why they dance, and they'll tell you, we're going for the rush of the magic dance. Yeah, but right? you can't chase that. That's they like, can, and they do, but it the leads drug. to disappointment and frustration, and that's what we're talking about. But, but, but people me, do it. They chase the high. They want the, the high. I feel like if, if you chase the high, you'll never get it, because part of... The high is this spontaneous, it's this magic. Right. That but happens. then they'll go to some dance weekend just randomly and it will happen. And then they're like, I want more. You know? right. <laughs> <laughs> they're like doing lines of magic dances, right, you know, right. but they don't get to do that very often. But I feel like I don't, I agree with you, Deborah. I wish we all went into a dance, you know, even if the, the minimum is accepting what it is <laughs> and making the best of it. Um, but I feel like it's also natural, a natural inclination to pursue better dancing, to chase the magic. Well, I, 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 I get that, but I, I feel like as you progress in this, the longer you're in this dance, the, the more your, uh, expectations and your objective and your outlook on this dance changes. Mm-hmm. Cause, when I, Cause when I was first in this dance, it was got to dance, got to dance, got to dance, got to dance. I love it. I love it. I love it. I need more. I need more. I got to win. I got to win. I got to win. I got to win. And then I, I, I accomplished many things in, in, in the dance community, mm-hmm. a lot that, and in a sh- quick amount of time, faster than anyone that's ever come in to this dance community. And now I'm more of the person that's like, Whatever happens, happens. I really, I just want to have a good time this weekend. Mm-hmm. I want to, I want to teach great workshops. I want to connect with my friends. I want to have fun, uh, social dancing. I want to have great conversations. Um, and usually when I, when that mindset happens, usually great things happen. But then there's also the flip side that I've noticed. Sometimes when you're in situations with, your peers or friendships or something where you're in a, um, say like a, an argument or, or, or a disagreement, um, with them. Those are the people you usually end up drawing 
in the Jack and Jill because the universe is trying to tell you, knock it off. You're missing the point here. You can't be mad at each other in the place where we get so much joy yeah. together, right? Yeah. So I feel like my advice to everybody is, is obviously do, do this dance that, you know, pursue this dance the way you want to pursue it. I, I really don't care. What I do care about is that, um, you don't, you don't get lost in, in all, all the minutia that happens in, in, in this dance community. And, and you remember that dancing brings us together. It gives us uh, new friendships. It gives us new skill sets, like how to, you know, we, we learn how to communicate with people differently because we're all different in, in the community. So I, I want people to be less um, in their head and more in their heart when they do this. And I think things would happen better for them. So uh, so I, I think this is also supported by the Dunning-Kruger effect, mm-hmm. right? Where the last stage uh, of it is being co- unconsciously competent, mm-hmm. where now the skill is so ingrained and it's so easy, you don't even have to think about it anymore, right? right. And that's where, that's where a person can be in that state of bliss. Right. Where the more time you spend, like you're saying, Deborah, the more time you spend doing an activity, the The more that you don't feel bad about yourself. And so you don't look for the Mm -hmm. badness that's happening around you. Right. And um, back to Inside Out. Right. The inward characters that were in charge reflected the outward affect of the character that was there. Mm -hmm. Right. 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 So. So. So I think the point there is that, you know, our emotion states in the moment in the dance will affect how we experience and how we remember the dance that happened. And and only we have control over. I feel like we have control over how how things can go if you change your expectation, like you said. Right. 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 Yeah, I think there's a again, there's a progression that people go through in the dance. I think part of it, like you said, Divi, is about how they learn and, and perceptions of self and self-efficacy and all these other things. Um, but I feel like Deborah, what you're talking about is, is, is almost maturity. There's right. a maturation process yeah. of, you know, baby dancer, right. Then there's like the tweens who start getting in this frustrated angsty so it takes state like 20 of like, years, people. I'm not good at this. And then right. they hit their twenties and they want to party with their friends and have a good time and uh, stay right. away from, you know, they're averse to the bad dances. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you mm-hmm. finally get into your thirties and you're like, you know what? Screw it. I don't care anymore. I know who I am. I don't, right. <laughs> you know, like everybody I know who all of my friends who made it into their thirties are like, what a relief. We stopped caring so much <laughs> right. about, you know, the minutia of stuff and the, the, the drama. And we're like, we're just here to, we just want to have a good time. And everybody's going to have yes. a good time. It's going to be fine. And I feel like Deborah, yes. the way you talked about like your progression, it's like there's a lot of Life. dancers in their teens and twenties. Yeah, right. They just haven't matured yet. They haven't right. developed the self confidence and self awareness, and not just competence, but self perception that allows them to be more comfortable and right. make and the I, best of those situations. Right, and I feel like I talk to students a lot about being comfortable in their own skin in general, which m- w- would mm-hmm. make th- this makes this dance. Um, easier um i i I feel like they just they need to hear it more and more and more and more and start to believe it and start to believe it you know you you know we talk a lot about um the importance of social dancers and being part of a broader community um and and how people you know as as you progress in this dance friends just want to like 
mingle with each other and don't have a natural desire, you know, to spend time with the collective of the, of the dance, right? Um, is there anything that community leaders can do to foster greater awareness of the community without being forceful? Yeah. So, uh, so from within, right. The community leader is also a community member. Right. Right. And so, uh, part of this is about reflecting in themselves what they'd like to see the community to be. Right. right. And I think that came, I think that was, that was another comment made during the two part of community, uh, episode that, you know, the community will kind of take the shape and the form reflective of the person that says lead. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, uh, internally the community leader needs to, you know, if they're advocating for, they have to walk the walk and talk the talk, so to speak. Right. Yeah. So then, um, I think that is where it starts. And then from there, it's about uh, when you witness something that is positive for the community, then that should be recognized and rewarded in some way. And then about explicitly setting those expectations and norms when they come in. I think Hugh said something about how when he was starting his community, he wanted to explicitly say things about not worrying about competition results, mm-hmm. right? About making it about the, and what he saw was that it made it about the, the community became about the people who were there. And thinking about it as mm-hmm. a collective. Yeah. And then, you know, as things evolve, they evolve and the person evolves, the community evolves and right. hopefully evolves into a collective as opposed to a set of fractured individuals. That's what we're working on. What would, I'm trying to understand too, like what the psychological background or process is between having a self-orientation versus another orientation or or Mm -hmm. a selfish mindset versus a collective one. Um, Mm -hmm. What causes people to make that switch? Well, you know, are just some people more other oriented naturally? Um, Mm -hmm. Are there certain conditions that can foster that mindset? So, so I think um, there are, there are people who are more empathetic than others, right. Mm -hmm. And who, uh, will uh, relate to others around them more easily, mm-hmm. right? And then there are people out there who are more about themselves, and this is about where they're from, how they grew up, uh, right. what their life is like in the moment, you know, going back to narcissism, like we were talking about before. There are people who had a lot of easy success in their life, and so they're going to walk in expecting easy success, and it's really about them, and it's not about not about the people around them in all sense of those terms, right? Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, so, uh, so a lot of it is just, you know, the type of persons who are there and, you know, it's like nature, nurture, nature, nurture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cause I'm yeah. very empathetic and I don't know if that's pot- partially because of how I grew up and where I grew up and, mm-hmm. um, and, and, uh, you know, parents being divorced and, and I guess, you know, environment and, and, um, and other things that come into account can mold you as a, as a, as a human. And some people protect themselves from the, from the experiences they've had growing up and make them less sympathetic and others Mm -hmm. do the direct opposite and become completely, you know, empathetic and open and come sit by me and how can I help you? And, um, and, and all those things. And, and, and I, I do, you know, being an empathetic person is much more difficult than being a non-empathetic person. I think it's harder. Uh to be an uh-huh. empath and it is not to. Oh, it's um, but a lot think, easier to shut it down, right? Right. 
Yeah. And I feel like if there were more people that would be open to the idea of um, trying to connect with others and, and even if you, you're fearful of it, I think we'd all be, you know, better off because that's how you gain collective consciousness, I feel like. Mm-hmm. And not mm-hmm. just for dancing, but, but, but for life. So I think it's as community leaders, uh, it's good for us to to be the person that we are. So other people aren't afraid to be that person too. like set right. the example right. for them. Right. Like, exactly. Right. Good. Yep. And it's a challenge, right? Ours is a world oh God, yeah. within the dance world and an outside the dance world that rewards individuals over communities. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, so it makes it a lot of harder. But once there's a once there's a cohesive core, right? Once there's a set of community leaders within mm-hmm. the like, you know, within the group that's there, the new people who come in, they get acculturated to it, and mm-hmm. then that's that's how they operate. That's how this world works. And for people who don't like it, they'll go somewhere else. Right. And I think right? it gets back to what you were saying before. Of, you know, we, we talked about how do you set expectations, and mm-hmm. part of it is the community leader. I'm very mindful of my own behavior within my community, knowing that I'm being watched and that I set the tone. But mm-hmm. I also rely on other people, our volunteers, our leadership team, other people who have stepped up, and even just people who naturally are the empaths, the people who naturally go and seek out other people to dance with or seek out other skill levels to dance with. And I try to reinforce that, like to show my appreciation for them being there and hope that, like you said, Divi, if there's sort of a critical mass of people mm-hmm. who are doing this, that that becomes mm-hmm. the norm. Like you that reach becomes a tipping point where people who aren't doing that are kind of on the outside. I mean, at right. the same time, I want to make space for people to come and just hang out, but I do want to yeah. set a culture that's at least inclusive and mindful mm-hmm. of others, even if you just come to hang out. You know what I mean? Right. Like, right. Come and hang out with your friends, but just be mindful that, you know, there are other people there you might want to ask them to dance every now and then outside right. of your circle of friends. <laughs> right. Would you, is there a good way of, um, like, cause again, like I know, I know that there are people that are uncomfortable with socializing the way I socialize. And, you know, every time I see someone, I hug them. Hello. And that's just, mm-hmm. you know, who I am. Is the, is there a way to make people feel comfortable with that kind of openness? It, I mean, it, they had to be ready to change. Got it. Or ready right. to receive. Yeah. Ready yeah. to receive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, physical contact especially is I know this different, uh, different from person to person, different from culture to culture, different between mm-hmm. genders, between ages, right? Right, and so uh, there's a lot, there's a lot there. Right, that's another podcast. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you coming here and shedding some light on expectations. You know, things I've taken from this conversation myself around setting expectations around the things we can control, not mm-hmm. stopping us from hoping that the things we don't have control over go our way, but mm-hmm. uh, being mindful of that and uh, being mindful of some of the, the biases that we have going into any situation, you know, that we bring ourselves into that situation with all of our preconceived knowledge or preformed knowledge and mm-hmm. just being more mindful of that and how it affects uh, both our own experience as well as potentially the experience of other or people. Everyone else. Yeah. Right, because like Deborah said, we are a community. We are a social dance, and yeah. we, you know, live together, die alone. Right, like right. the more we foster community and make sure everybody has a good time, the more people we have to dance with, and the more better dancing we're going to have. Absolutely. 
And yeah. the, the one day we'll have Utopia. Wouldn't that be great? That would be great. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, one day. But then what one would Divi day. do for a living if everybody's already... He'd be part of our Utopia. I, I'm glad. <laughs> right, I wouldn't have to worry about it because right. I'm in Utopia. <laughs> That's right. right. Exactly. Exactly. Thanks so much for being with us, Divi. You're awesome. Yeah. Thank so you. glad to have oh, you back. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, for sure. Thank you all so much for joining us today. If you want to share your thoughts and reactions with us, you can post a comment on our website. You can respond to our posts on Facebook, or you can share your thoughts in our discussion group on Facebook. That's still happening. You can also email Deborah and me through our site at thenakedtruthwcs.com or through our Facebook page. To get the latest news, you can like our page on Facebook. You can subscribe to our weekly newsletter. You can follow us on Instagram at thenakedtruthwcs. And of course, you can go ahead, be brave, be bold. Follow us on Twitter at <laughs> Naked Truth WCS. How many Twitter followers we have? We broke 50 people. We broke 50. Yes. Now we go for 100. Don't forget, you can buy some stylish swag at our online store. Just go to the Naked Truth WCS.com forward slash store to buy yours today. We can ship it to you or we can get it to you at an upcoming event. Again, that's the Naked Truth WCS.com forward slash store. And you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and a number of other podcast hosting platforms. We're everywhere. We are. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave us a review on Facebook. And if you're on iTunes, please rate us and give us a review over on iTunes. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Eric. And I'm Deborah. And that's The Naked Truth. Are you, are you having a hot flash? No, I'm still warm from my run. I took a cold shower, but I, I can't cool down. I wore a lot of clothes because it was cold out. And then, uh, you know, you run, you get hot. And then it started right. raining. And, uh, yeah. I wish I could get to running because it's a really good way to lose weight. And um, it's part of my goal to keep that the love handles, you know, to chini size. What the f*** love handles? You, They're dude, there, man. Like a- you were walking asparagus. They started talking about. Meaning I'm bumpy and I make your pee smell? <laughs>